Hello and welcome to the Beyond Borders Scotland podcast. I'm Alan Little and in this episode we're trying to shed light on a topic of immense importance and complexity, Britain and international security. Geopolitical landscapes are constantly shifting now. What is Britain's role in this unstable world? We're joined by two distinguished guests who bring a wealth of knowledge and insight to our discussion. First, we have Lindsay Hilsom, a journalist and author renowned for her expertise in international affairs. For more than 30 years, Lindsay has been on the ground with a close-up view of just about every major conflict from Iraq to Ukraine and Israel-Palestine. Alongside Lindsay, we're joined by Graham Cundy, former Royal Marine Commando and recipient of the Queen's Commendation for Bravery. He's also seen more than his fair share of conflict up close. His expertise in security and foreign policy will help us navigate through the complexities of Britain's role on the international stage. Today's discussion will also touch upon Britain's involvement in Yemen. The UK has long-standing historical ties there. It has also supported the Saudi intervention through arms sales and technical assistance. And Britain is currently, alongside the US, engaged in military action against Houthi rebel forces accused of launching attacks on civilian shipping. Together, we'll explore the current state of global security, the unique challenges Britain faces, including its actions in Yemen and the broader implications for international relations. So, whether you're a seasoned expert in international affairs or simply keen to understand more about Britain's role in global security, this episode is for you. Now, let's hear from two renowned and seasoned observers, Lindsay Hilsom and Graham Cundy. Hello, welcome. Uh, my name is Alan Little. I'm a journalist and broadcaster, and it's great to be back at this uh, at this great festival. And it's good to see so many people back after the pandemic. Um, um, we're here to talk about uh, British intervention over the last well three decades, I suppose. And all three of us have some ex- uh, uh, experience of uh, either witnessing or taking part in those some of those interventions. Let me introduce you first to Graham Cundy. Uh, Colonel Graham Cundy, he'd served 25 years in the Royal Marines, 20 of which uh, he was a senior special forces officer providing specialist national security advice. He commanded the Special Boat Service, the SBS, between 2007 and 2009 and uh, is notable for leading the Western intervention in Afghanistan in support of the Northern Alliance immediately after 9-11, 22 years ago. Lindsay Hilsom. Um, is a very old friend of mine. We've known each other for 30 years. Uh, you'll know her for her award-winning work on Channel 4 News. She has an enormous experience. Um, she's been at every major conflict, many of the minor ones too, for the last 20 years or so. And Lindsay and I first met in the aftermath of the first Gulf War in 1991. And then we saw each other again in uh, Rwanda. Lindsay was in Rwanda during the genocide, one of the few Western journalists to be present when it started. Um, Please welcome them. I want to do a canter through the 1990s before we get to Afghanistan and Iraq, which I want to devote most of the time here to. But Bosnia was the, we thought of it at the time as the first post-Cold War conflict. But actually when I look back on it now, it wasn't the the first of a new kind of conflict, it was the last of an old kind of conflict. It was the last conflict of the pre-digital age. So it feels now like a very old-fashioned war compared to what we've been witnessing in the past. Uh, Graham, you were involved in that early intervention. What was your what was your role, and what did you see? 
Yeah, so I was a uh, Joint Commission Observer, or that was a term that was given to us, um, JCO, which is really, a, a, in theory, working for the United Nations, but really a, a cover name which allowed the British government to do what was fundamental, I think, in any sort of in, um, intervention, which is understanding what's really happening on the ground. So our role was to go out um, at some, some distance away from where, the, where our sort of security bases were in order to talk to the local, local warlords and the people on the ground and to actually give a real ground truth as to not what the intelligence agencies were saying, but actually what the people on the ground were saying and the sort of indications of, of, of what the warlords thought they were going to do. So this was when the, the nature of the intervention was changing because the, mm. the massacre at Srebrenica had happened. For two and a half years before that, British troops had been deployed in Bosnia as peacekeepers with no peace to keep. It was a very ill-conceived intervention, but it lasted a long time. And it caused a lot of tension between yeah. the, British and the, the British and the French on the one hand and the Americans on the other. The Americans wanted something much more robust. The Americans came to want military intervention to stop the ethnic cleansing but the British and the French opposed it until Srebrenica, and that's what changed. Yeah, I think there's, there's two things to take out of that. I think the, the, the European view of warfare is somewhat different to, to an American one, perhaps, because we've been broiled in it for so long, and we know, you know, <laughs> wars don't normally go well, to be fair, whichever side you're on, and the consequences of getting involved are quite significant. So um, wars, uh, when we get to a full war scale, scale, it tends to be a very much a last resort, and hence the hesitancy. I think, however... The Bosnia is a good example where we have a UN intervention where we try to do the right thing and protect the people on the ground through things such as safe havens, but in reality they were, they were not safe. And I think there's, there's an argument that could be made that by having a half level of intervention, i.e. not pursuing peace and diplomacy to actually get to resolution, we actually dragged out a war that could have been shortened and actually created additional misery for the people yeah, on the ground. I think what we learned during those two and a half years in Bosnia was intervention of that sort can have the effect of prolonging a war without changing its outcome and Very much in so. the end doing more harm than, Very than much good. So. Lindsay, at the height of the Bosnian war you were in Rwanda. I was in Rwanda indeed, so I was seeing what happens if you don't intervene. I mean, later on I became a sort of specialist in being bombed by my own side. Uh, because I spent a lot of time in Belgrade being bombed by the, you know, the Americans, the British, and in Baghdad being bombed by, by them as well. I sort of, oh, come friendly bombs, you know, it was a bit John Betjeman. But, uh, yeah, so I was in Rwanda. So, so what I saw was what happens if nobody intervenes. So if a genocide is allowed to happen, which it did. And then the world woke up and went, oh, shit, uh, we missed that. And so then a million people fled to Goma in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But they weren't the victims, they were the perpetrators. They were the people who had carried out the genocide. They were the neighbors of the Tutsis, they were the Hutus. And then the world intervened to help them as refugees. So you went, hang on, hang on. We've allowed a million people to be slaughtered. And when the Rwandan People's uh, Front, who were came and stopped the slaughter and saved those who remained of the Tutsis. We helped the people who had carried it out. It was all a bit baffling. Was it scarring for you, personally? Ah, oh, yeah, a little bit. What kind of question is that? Yes! Of course it was! <laughs> That's a typical Lindsay answer. Um, that business of being bombed by your own side, I was in Baghdad in 1991 being mm. bombed by you guys. And uh, I was sharing a house at that time with a good friend of mine in Brixton in South London. And he was in Saudi Arabia, one of the air bases. And I'm, after a night, uh, uh, three air raids in one night, 
Um, I turned on the World Service and I heard him in the airbase in Saudi Arabia asking the pilots how it had gone. <laughs> and I thought, just wait till I get home, I'll bloody well tell you how it went. I, I, th I think the point to say, it was nothing personal. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's um, <clears throat> talk about how that changed the way the Western world thought about intervention. The Bosnian intervention was successful to the extent that it ended the war and en enabled some kind of uh, peace process to, to take place. Uh, did that embolden the Western world, do you think, into believing in, 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 in intervention and, and into abandoning the uh, practice, though the, 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 the prevailing rule, which was you don't interfere in the sovereign affairs of sovereign states? Yeah, I, so I'll give you purely a practitioner's view as opposed to a British government view here. But, but from where I was sitting, I mean, I was a young captain at the time in, uh, in, the, in the Bosnia conflict, and what we were seeing was a real, a real shift that that actually we could, in the West, intervene for the right reasons and make a difference. There was an optimism that actually, something I talk about occasionally, is the utility of force, that force at the right time, at the right place, can make a difference. The danger with all these things is learning the, 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 the wrong lessons, which perhaps we might go on to later. But I'd say, yeah, there was a real optimism that, and, and certainly from somebody in the military, <coughs> we, we are very much driven by a sense of purpose and, 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 and a feeling that we are making a difference or can make a difference. There was definitely an optimism that, 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 that Britain is a force for good on the world stage. You know, you know, feel free to criticise that. But, but certainly, as, a, as from a practitioner's point, uh, you know, we weren't being bombed by our own side, so we take perhaps a slightly different view. But, um, but yes, the, 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 there was an optimism that actually we'd found the, the West, and particularly Western forces and European forces, had found a voice and that they could make a difference. I went to see <coughs> Madeleine Albright when she was still Secretary of State uh, under the... Uh, well, what would it be Clinton, I think, yeah, uh, immediately after the Kosovo conflict. And she said the relationship between Britain and America fundamentally changed with the election of Tony Blair in 1997, mm. with the idea, of, you might remember this, the ethical foreign policy. Mm. And Blair had a vision of how liberal interventionism should work, which he outlined in a speech early on in Chicago. And he was partly emboldened by Kosovo and Sierra Leone. I want to talk to you about Sierra Leone because mm. you were there. I was there in May 2000 when 800 paratroopers landed out of the blue because the, the war had started again. The, the rebels had left the government and gone back to the bush and were preparing to march on Freetown and do what they'd always done during the war, which is to terrorise the population, chop, hand, chop arms and legs off, destroy people's lives. And Blair sent uh, paratroopers in to evacuate the British nationals and other third country nationals in five days. The trouble was, once the paratroopers got there, the British didn't want to leave because they felt safe. And so what David Richards, who was the, brig the brigadier commanding the battalion, did was he went, he went rogue. And he's admitted this since. He, uh, he decided that because no Brit British people wanted to be evacuated, he, a British officer, would intervene in the war and start supplying uh, the Sierra Leone armed forces and make them fit to go to, to take the war to, to, to the rebels. And he, put, he took personal command of the Sierra Leone armed forces. He, was he told me he was refusing to take calls from the MOD because they were screaming at him to get on with the evacuation and get home. Mm. It was a career-threatening decision. I mean, if it had gone wrong, he would certainly have been court-martialed. But it worked. And I was there on the ground explaining to the BBC audiences that, this, that Britain, had, Britain had, in effect, intervened in the civil war. And my diplomatic colleagues were standing outside the MOD saying, no, that's not true. It's an, it's an evacuation. I said, it's not an evacuation anymore. It might have started like that. And in the end, Tony Blair's government took credit for ending the war. Um, and Tony Blair remains a hero in Sierra Leone. And the last Indeed. time I saw him, he said, it's nice to be a hero somewhere. Yeah, it's... it's <laughs> 
it's an interesting point. I mean, there's loads of times I would love to have gone rogue, perhaps, but um, I, th I, th I think you, you, it needs to be slightly nuanced. And, and, and to come back to, to my point about if you are making a strategic decision back in London, particularly in those sort of pre-digital days, and yeah, I'd say even now when the messaging that you're seeing on the news, or actually not the news, that's, if you're watching the news, that's a good thing, what you're seeing on Instagram or or, or Twitter, or whatever you want to call it nowadays, that, that, that actually you are getting a distorted view. What David Richards, I would argue, and I, I had a slightly different involvement in that, which was the evacuation, sorry, the rescue of the hostages, which I did slightly from a distance. But for those early days, what David Richards was doing was seeing a situation on the ground very different from the means with which he was going in and making a decision. And that's a big call. And, and that's something we might discuss later on. I think as journalists, you're in the same situation. But as a military officer, quite often you are either under a restriction not to do something when actually the moral thing is to do something. So you're breaking those, those rules of engagement. Or at other times you've got rules of engagement when you can do something, but the moral thing is not to do it. And I think that's a difference perhaps in terms of the way that we educate our officers, particularly in the West, and I, I would of course say this about UK military officers, is that judgment call. And David Richards, rightly or wrongly, he became a four-star chief of defence staff, so perhaps rightly, made a judgment call on the ground, which had, I would argue, a positive effect. So have you ever, done, have you ever gone rogue in that way and made a decision which, was, which you believed to be morally right against your orders or didn't do something which you believed to be morally wrong against your orders? No, it's all right, it's just between the three of us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, Yes, I see a number of MOD lawyers queuing up outside. Yeah. The, um, uh, yes, I have. Yes, I have. I've had to make a very difficult call, um, which, uh, w w and because of course, you know, this isn't, you know, deciding to break the speed limit or just, you know, the, the, we are talking about events that will affect people's lives. Maybe a few, maybe many, but but morality in intervention is something we don't talk about enough mm. of in terms of military. We think military is hard-edged. Yes, it is but the decisions in order to do those things are quite significant. Uh, and there are times when I've had to make a difficult call, which uh, are outside of my rules of engagement, because it was to the benefit of the needs of the many, not the few. Can you give the example? I would rather not. <laughs> Sorry, I'm taking on your job here. Yeah, I am, yeah. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. He could tell you, but he'd have to kill you. Yes. <laughs> Um, let's get to Af Afghanistan and Iraq. Can, can I just say something about Sierra Leone, yeah. Because... Um, <laughs> I think that what's really interesting is that I think that Sierra Leone, from a British point of view, was the high watermark of liberal intervention. And it emboldened Tony Blair in a very damaging way because it was successful. Why was it successful? It was successful because it, the, the conflict was contained and because the people who were chopping the arms and legs off and so on were frankly a pathetic force. They were useless. And those 800 paratroopers could deal with them pretty easily. The British army is pretty good. And they the enemy were pretty rubbish. And so I think it emboldened um, Tony Blair to think that this was a way of dealing with the problems of the world which could work. And actually, that wasn't really true. And, and actually, Lindsay, you, you hit a really valid point there, just to spin on this for a second, because actually back in the UK inside defence circles, what this also showed, with the reflections we were getting from our American colleagues, with whom we, we tend to fight most closely with, um, uh, you know, I've got a great friend for European nations, but, but actually the Americans are the ones who are closer to because we tend to be in those hard-edged positions and actually get stuff done. The Americans were shocked with what we did in Sierra mm. Leone uh, because there was a British Prime Minister making a unilateral decision with no support whatsoever 
from the Americans. It was actually relatively easily done in terms of what, what was executed on the ground. But the Americans do have a mindset that the Europeans can't do anything. And I think that has shifted over time. I, I, just one quick story from Sierra Leone at that time. It was a few, few, a few months before you got there, right at the start. David Richards was under instruction to get the evacuation done and get out. No British people wanted to be evacuated because they felt safe because the paratroopers were there. So he started evacuating Senegalese people uh, to, in order for there to be something at the airport to, for the news crews to film. <laughs> and we were talking to these people, ready to get on this plane, and saying, you must be relieved to be, to be evacuated. No, they said, we're going home for the weekend, we're coming back on Monday. <laughs> <coughs> it, became, it became kind of farcical, but more seriously, it was a lie. The MOG press office were, were oh, yes. putting on a bit of theatre to try and dupe us into, uh, into the view that the, 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 evacu the, the purpose was evacuation and the evacuation was going ahead uh, as planned. But it's, so, of course, none of us believed them and we all wanted to get at the truth. And in the end, Richards levelled with us and made us, but gave us unattributable background briefings on what was really happening. Yeah, I think that's that sense of, 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 of trust and belief <coughs> on what you're being shown is actually quite important. That's a small example, but perhaps we're going to touch on this. I would say, particularly in the last 10 years, there's been an erosion of trust, which has led to a lack of intervention. Perhaps we'll... Yeah, well, that's one of the legacies of, of, of Iraq and, Af and yes. Afghanistan, I think. Lindsay, <clears throat> Afghanistan, the Kazakh's belly was absolutely clear. You've missed Kosovo. I've missed Kosovo, yeah. Do we, do we want to do Kosovo? I just want to say something about Kosovo, which was interesting. Because, so Kosovo, I was in Belgrade, as I say, being bombed by my inside. And we, so I was, you know, embedded with the Serbs. And I can remember a couple of things. And one was... We would, went down to Kosovo with the Serbs and we, we told NATO through various things, you know, the convoy we were going in, because we didn't really want to be bombed, mm. you know. They bombed us anyway, yeah. right, or they bombed just ahead of us, which wasn't very nice. And I can remember, and there were so many different things, and this comes back to trust. So the Serbs had put all these um, plastic bridges and tanks around in Kosovo. And so at, at that point, and they were... What were they bombing from? Fifteen thousand feet or something like that, or maybe even higher. But it was it was quite high, and you know optics weren't as good as they are now. So anyway, lots of mistakes were were made, and lots of plastic bridges were bombed. And then there was a terrible thing where they bombed a whole bunch of of tractors, which were actually mm. Kosovars who were escaping, and it was an awful, awful thing. And of course, the NATO said they hadn't done it, and that it was tanks. And then we were taken there, and of course, we were taken there by the Serbs, and you can't necessarily trust the Serbs. But actually, they had done it. NATO had done it. It was a terrible mistake. And it took them a long time to admit it. And they lied. And I can remember after all of this, um, when the NATO forces come into Kosovo and we, we met some Gurkhas and a very nice commanding officer who said, would we like to have supper with them? To which the answer was yes, because we were going to get curry and ice cream, <laughs> which we had not had in many months. And so we're sitting there chatting um, with the officer. And, and I sort of talked about about this the story, what had happened. And he looked at me and he said, so do you mean you didn't believe the NATO spokesman? And I looked at him and said, so you mean you did? And then I suddenly realized the difference between a soldier and a journalist, because he thought that it was really weird of me not to believe. And I thought it was really weird of him to believe what they said. And there you are, there's one of the differences in culture between us. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think he was just testing you, Lindsay, to be honest. Ah, um, right. <laughs> I think that, 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 and actually, it's an interesting point there, particularly as an officer. It depends on where you are. I can't speak yes, to that, Gurkha officer. But 
but certainly from from you know, the majority of my career, which has been uh, been involved in being ahead of a conflict or being yeah. on the ground, you, 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 I mean, I actually don't trust anyone other than my wife who's sitting somewhere in the audience. Yes. But, um, <laughs> it, uh, and perhaps my, perhaps well my Jack, recovered. Yeah, but 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 actually, but there is a point here because you are in a situation where there are competing ideologies, competing. Uh, end states that people want. Yes. Arguably, everybody is lying to you to one degree or another. Yes. I mean, Channel Four would never ever. No, no, but we are. Lie, but, but no, people are lying to us. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah. so you know, I always go in not believing whoever it is that I'm that, yeah. I'm, that I'm talking. So let's get to Afghanistan because yeah. you were at the sharp end in that. Uh, right at the start of that conflict. What, what was your job? What did you have to do? Yeah. So, um, well, initially, uh, I left the morning. I left actually. Uh, going to work at 10 o'clock in the morning, thinking I'd spend an all day in the office. Uh, and, but by sort of four o'clock in the afternoon, I was flying out to Oman, and then within 24 hours, I was actually in Bagram um, with the Northern Alliance. Although we were told we were going to be met. Uh, it was a, it was a <coughs> covert insertion, uh, so we were a sort of special forces Hercules, no lights, landing on a landing strip, which would be secured and, uh, and manned by the CIA. That was the first lie. So this is um, as part of the invasion, or uh, this? Well, you'd argue this is this is pre this is pre invasion and organising what the West were going to yeah. do. So this yeah. was less than thirty days after nine eleven. The air war had now started, but it was largely being fought by the air and supporting with the Northern Lions coming down the Panjshir Valley. Uh, this was the first time the British were going. To, in fact, we you know we were ahead of the American forces, other than CIA uh, and some of our own intelligence agencies, on getting onto the on the on the ground. So a point about not mm. trusting anyone. You know, I've learned from experience that when someone says, I'll meet you on the airstrip, don't worry, it'll be all right. Uh, actually, that means they're not going to meet you and it's probably going to end very badly. Uh, and, and that was a classic example, really, when we first turned up. Similarly, the Northern Alliance would be very pleased to see you. They were not and actually wanted us to, uh, to, to, to leave. Uh, the third bit was, of course, that the, the Bagram airfield, which we eventually took, was, don't worry, there's nothing dangerous there. Actually, it was covered in minefields and had been for years. Which, uh, which luckily that night as we were wandering around, we didn't know. But so, so the point is, always go in assuming that nothing is going to be uh, until you get on the ground and make a decision. So our role initially was to link up with the Northern Alliance, was to provide them with their first bit of, of, um, of I'd say, although we were special forces, a conventional ability in order to take them forward. Our actual, what we did from that though was linking, start to linking with the Northern Alliance warlords bit by bit. Uh, and then to actually get them to fuse together, because some of you may know that the first act of 9-11 was the assassination of Ahmed Shah Massoud, who was the unifying leader of the Northern Alliance, three days before 9-11 terror attacks, done deliberately to fracture uh, the Northern Alliance, because they, they knew that Afghanistan uh, and the Taliban would be hit. Do you think, Lindsay, that we understood the nature of the Taliban at the start of that war? Because they were removed very quickly and very efficiently, but they didn't go away. And you and I both spent time mm. during that 20-year operation, and uh, the Taliban will all say the same thing. You guys have got to win this war. We, all we have to do is not lose it. Yeah. And, and, and in the end, Afghanistan will come back to us like a, like a, mm. fruit, a ripened mm. fruit falling from a tree. Yeah. And the other thing they used to say, which is a, a cliche in Afghanistan, but is also true, which is, you have the watches, we have the time. And that was also true. Yeah, I think there was a complete failure to understand that the Taliban unpleasant as they are, um, is part of Afghan society. And, you know, there was, and, and this I, I do blame the Americans for, because there was a time after they defeated the Taliban, which many people in Afghanistan were extremely pleased about. They were very happy that the Taliban were defeated. But that didn't mean that you could exclude them from power forever. 
and there needed to be some kind of accommodation. And Hamid Karzai, who was picked you know, by the Americans basically to be the leader, he, he knew that and he understood that. He said, you, we have to find, you know, this is a different society. You can't tell us that we're a democracy and you know, whoever wins, you know, gets the majority of the votes wins. That's not how our society works. Our society works on a much more sort of complex way most of which involves, you know, rooms like this with, you know, 200 men in turbans um, talking forever. And, but that is it. And some of them are Taliban and they need to be accommodated. And the fact that they were not accommodated led to the disaster that followed. And it doesn't mean that the system would have been one that we liked. And it doesn't mean that the system would have been fantastic. But it does mean that you wouldn't have had this this relentless war over those over those twenty years. I think. But by now, what we had was a, a highly ideological White House. That, um, yes. Driven by there was somebody said to me uh, that in George Bush Senior's White House, you had a, a, a culture war between between the pragmatists and the mullahs. Yes. The mullahs <laughs> being the neocons, yes. Dick Cheney, uh, Rumsfeld, and, and so on, and the and the neocons mm. won the battle for foreign policy and came to believe that short, sharp military interventions could really bring democracy to Afghanistan yes. and the Middle East. So what we had was you know presidential elections <coughs> with two candidates with running mates, like on the American yes. model, uh, and it we've learned since that the plans to invade Iraq were drawn mm. up long before 9-11. 9-11 became the pretext, but actually there was a plan to intervene in Iraq long before that. It was driven, to what extent was it driven by this I vision? I think it was totally driven by, by that vision. Um, and one of the many tragedies of it was that there was actually plenty of knowledge and information. There are a lot of anthropologists. There are a lot of historians. There are a lot of people who understood very well the nature of Afghan society and Iraqi mm. society who knew that this wouldn't work. And, um, and they were completely ignored by the, by the ideologues. And I think that one of the disasters of British intervention was that we went along with that. And I think that Tony Blair um, you know, had, a, had a very exaggerated view of his own influence on America, that he could moderate some of this stuff with the neocons and so on. And he couldn't, as we have found out. And that was one of the reasons that this, this faith in intervention that he had this faith in intervention and he had this this faith in our his own importance and um, and you know the rest is history let me ask you about intelligence i was in uh, jordan just before the iraq war started in 2003 with gordon carrera who's now the bbc's security mm. correspondent and back then he was producing gordon and i were making a program together and we met uh, we were introduced to an iraqi man in in jordan who claimed to be a a, a major in the iraqi armed forces uh, who had defected, and he had a story for us. He was going to tell yes. us that there were weapons of mass destruction, that he'd worked on the uh, weapons of mass destruction program, and he'd uh, been responsible for hiding them in the ground and deep under, underground. And he gave us this whole story, and Gordon and I, and when he, when he left, Gordon and I looked at each other and we thought, did, did that ring true to you? And, and we didn't believe him. Um, and then, at that famous Security Council meeting that mm -hmm. Tony Blair managed to persuade the Americans to mm -hmm. take part in, Colin Powell turned up mm -hmm. with, and to, to, to show the world the evidence they had on WMDs. And I remember thinking, is, is that it? Is that all you've got? Mm -hmm. And then he said, and we've got new intelligence from an Iraqi major <laughs> who defected, and he's been hiding the weapons of mass destruction deep underground. I said, 
That's our dodgy major. That's the shifty major that we didn't believe in. Here was Colin Powell, the yeah. Secretary of State of the, the, the Foreign Minister of the most powerful nation on earth, using it as, as proof. How did we get the intelligence so badly wrong? Yeah, okay, that's, I think it's a, it's a really interesting question. And I'll go back to a previous point where I talked about morality and making judgments. So again, culturally, we're all different, uh, nationality-wise, even within even within our own country. But, but let's come back to the driving purpose of, of how we, let's just use Britain in this case, let's look at how we do things. Look at how our intelligence services work. It, it's driven on ideology and what we stand for, we're a force for good on the, on, in the world, you know, wherever it may be. Um, Hence, the people who come to work for us genuinely think that, that we are this sort of, we are doing the right thing. We are, you know, you know, playing cricket or whatever it may be. Or, more importantly, oddly, they have watched a James Bond movie and think that we are that good um, and, and the good guys always win. It sounds odd, but you'd be surprised how many people do come and work uh, for the British because they've watched James Bond. But moving on from that, uh, you laugh. But, um, but, but significantly... If the means of gathering information is because you build a rapport for someone and you, get, and you ask them a question, there are two questions I always ask when I'm passed a piece of information is, what are they trying to inform? You know, what, is this inf is, are they informing me or are they trying to influence me? Or is it a combination of the two? What is the reason for this person passing this intelligence or this information that they are? That's the British way of doing it. The American way of doing it is basically dollars. Now, yeah. now the number of times I've chased people around the country, Afghanistan or Iraq, because there's a rumour that Osama bin Laden has turned up wherever it may be. It used to become a joke. Osama yes. bin Laden would turn up once a week on a motorbike, on a camel train, flying, whatever he was doing, and we'd off gone, you know, wandering around trying to find him. And the reason for that is if I turn around to you and say, can you, I'll give you $100,000 if you can tell me where Osama bin Laden is. Guess what? I've got a lot of people telling me where he is. <laughs> so, so there's a difference there. Mm. More importantly, all of us want to hear what we'd like to believe, not what the truth may be. And therefore there's a natural selection, or can be if we're not careful, an intelligence that's passed up the line. You must be told that which you don't want to hear as well as that which you do want to hear. And I think that, in particularly with uh, Donald Rumsfeld, you had a situation where people, because he's such a fiery character, don't tell him the bad news. So you're reinforcing the stories you want to hear, and that leads you down the line. But this action. happened in the British intelligence services as well. There was a confirmation bias at work. They yes. knew they were serving a government that wanted to have a pretext to go to war. Regime change wasn't going to cut it with the British public. WMDs yeah. would. Yeah, and, and, and you know, <laughs> in all confidence, so there's two things I'd say. I'd, I'd say. First of all, a lot of people castigate Tony Blair for taking us into that war. During this time, I was in America on a planning team doing the invasion before we'd even admitted the Brits were going to get involved. And what I will tell you is that invasion should have happened three months pre prior to when it did. Our, our job, by the way, was not regime change. It was regime removal. That's what the American military were doing. That's what the British military were going to do. The significant point from that is Tony Blair was hated in the American military because he delayed the war by three months because he took us back to the UN Security Council time after time again. In this country, we see it in a different view that he took us into it. On the intelligence piece, the, the, what happened with British intelligence after that for, uh, led to a formal change in the way the intelligence agencies write their intelligence. The intelligence hasn't changed, but how they convey it has. And, and, and so a lot can be lost in translation. Of course, you're going to get random reports. I think it was the Nigerian yellow cake or whatever it was. Niger. Niger. It ah, was Niger, uh, Niger, yes. Um, but the guy who went to investigate that, who was called Joe, can't remember his surname, interviewed him, uh, Joe Wilson, 
Joe Wilson. He came back and said there was no yellow cake. That the yellow cake in Niger was, you know, he came back and said the opposite of what they, the government reported him as saying. And I think what's fascinating about all three of us on the stage here, but from a different angle, actually it's a vital point what you just mm. said. Our, our roles are speaking truth to power. Mm. Uh, my role from the military is telling people what's, what in theory, what we're seeing is happening. And similarly, as journalists, mm. you're also speaking truth to power. So the quality of our journalists in each mm. nation also, I think, affects how governments and administrations act. Yeah. What's the difference between re regime removal and regime change? Uh, yeah, so regime removal, so, so we, we, we foolishly thought perhaps that, that actually the change bit, what was going to come in after the, the, the military peace had happened, was all sorted by somebody else, by the State Department. So we were just there to remove the military, remove Saddam Hussein, after which point the State, or, you know, State Department in America would step in yeah. with an enormous plan, you know, nation The power of wishful thinking. But well, the State Department had been disempowered by the Bush White House. The State Department was completely sidelined because mm. they were sceptical about the, the war. And Lindsay, you were in Baghdad <laughs> when the war started. You stayed for the whole thing. Mm. Um, what did it look like to you then? Could you, were, there, were there auguries of what was about to happen? Well, I think that what was really interesting was, so I was there in the run-up. In fact, I arrived the day of Colin Powell's presentation. So I watched that at the Iraqi Ministry of Information, surrounded by these anti-war campaigners called the Women in Pink, who were completely barking mad. I mean, they all came from Seattle and wore tutus. Um, so it was a good story. Um, but then, and we had had, and I'd been going backwards and forwards for the, you know, in the, in the run-up, um, and we were constantly, you know, trying to get to go to. Uh, sites where there might be weapons of mass destruction and, and in all fairness Saddam Hussein did not behave like an innocent man <laughs> you know it was quite difficult to go to these sites obviously but he didn't want to admit that he didn't have weapons of mass exactly he didn't want to admit he didn't have weapons of mass destruction because he thought it would make him look weak yeah. and so he was pretending to have weapons of mass destruction when he didn't any longer have weapons of mass destruction I mean try and find your way through all of that and I I can remember just very, and I believed that he had weapons of mass destruction because the Iraqis behaved as if he did. And we were always playing cat and mouse with the Iraqis and cat and mouse with the weapons inspectors and all of this stuff. And I was forever ringing the, the late lamented and lovely David Kelly and saying, I've seen this, what does it mean? Um, and, and so on and so forth. And I can remember very near when the, the war began, um, Don Rumsfeld had talked about how they had these... Um, high-tech planes that were going to spray chemical weapons everywhere. And the Iraqis did take us to the high-tech planes, which were made of balsa wood. And I remember one of them was painted pink. And they, they were like, um, they had uh, the American journalists, I remember this phrase described that they were powered by an engine the size of a weed whacker, uh, which was a lovely phrase. Um, and I can remember our office manager, a lovely Iraqi man called Karim, coming up to me. He looked at these, and then he looked at me, and he came up to me, and he said, Lindsay, he said, this aeroplane, very big problem for Americans? <laughs> and in that moment, I thought, this is all bollocks. <laughs> this yeah. is complete bollocks. As if this is the best they can come up with. But yeah. by then, the course was set. That mm. was less than a week before the war yeah. began. Yeah, and I just say, you know, it was so, so after the war was won, I, I remember we spent several months... Oh, yes, one, trying to find it. ...trying to find the weapons of destruction, which we, you know, we were convinced as everybody else that they must be there. <clears throat> and I think I said, said earlier, it's kind of, you know, slightly off record, but my only real surprise, not that we didn't find them, was that the CIA didn't plant any. Um, <clears throat> so... <laughs> 
Um, yeah, because it was embarrassing. It was deeply embarrassing, yeah. <laughs> uh, I went to Baghdad just after the statue came down. Yeah. Were you still there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I you stayed. stayed I, you? Yeah, yeah. I watched the statue. That's I watched the Americans pull the statue down with the, with the tank and the, the hawser. And the Americ and the Iraqis, who were, they were, you know, some of them were very enthusiastic about it. They threw shoes, but shoe, you can't bring a statue down with shoes. Doesn't but the work. fact that it was the Americans who pulled the well, statue actually, down, Americans pulled it down. No was, was very symbolic. It was of, very symbolic. Yeah, the yeah. Iraqis, the, it wasn't the Iraqis who overthrew Saddam Hussein. And mm. The atmosphere soured very, very quickly. And I used to go to big prayer meetings. And um, what was clear is that the only people with moral authority in the country now were the imams, mm. were the clerics. Um, okay. Because everybody, all these uh, secular authorities had melted away. And, um, and there was terrible looting going on. And, um, you know, I stood and watched the looting with a lot of Iraqis who were in tears and saying that this is, this is terrible, this is terrible, you know, what is happening in our society? And Donald Rumsfeld said, stuff happens. Yeah. You know, that happens. was so damaging, and, so damaging. And the big revelation, the, the penny drop moment for me, it seemed, was everything in the country was being looted. Yeah. There was nobody to protect any, government departments, hospitals, schools. Um, and I thought, well, if there are weapons of mass destruction here, little files of chemical weapons that mm. can wipe out a city, those weapons are now on the international terror market. Yes. And it was clear from then mm. that there, wasn't, there weren't any weapons weren't, of mass yeah, destruction. There weren't, yeah, because nothing turned up. And, um, and yeah, although I'd argue the weapon of mass destruction we released during that was the looting, yes. where we then allowed anybody to take all the weapons that had previously been under the control of the state. So we, you know, we created, we, you know, we were reaping the whirlwind in the years that followed. Mm. Yeah, we created anarchy, but also, I mean, I don't want to sort of draw on this back to one story, which was, because I remember it so clearly, I can remember the day the American tanks, the Abrams tanks, came into Baghdad, and I was, you know, was with a group of journalists and, you know, Iraqi friends and, and journalists, and I can remember watching um, a small group of Iraqis seeing this tank and then going up to the soldiers with flowers and chocolates because they really did welcome them. For 24 hours they welcomed them because they hated Saddam Hussein so much. And then they didn't really know what to do. And so they had always been taught under Saddam Hussein that you had to jump up and down and chant, with my blood and my spirit I redeem thee, O Saddam Hussein. So they looked at each other and then they went, with my blood and my spirit I redeem thee, O George Bush. <laughs> that was what they did. Now the next day, so we were all like, great, this is all great. The next day, I went out with my team of Iraqis and we knew that the Americans were a bit trigger happy. And we went to a place called Adamia where we had heard that Saddam Hussein's sons were around, which wasn't true, anyway, it doesn't matter. We walked up to the castle, which they, the castle, the palace that they had taken over. And I can remember it so clearly because we put, I had a white scarf which we tied on the end of a broomstick because we didn't want to be shot by the Americans. So we carry, I carried this surrender flag up because the Americans were firing opposite. And there were bullet holes in the mosque opposite. They said that they had been taken fire from it, which may well have been true. But they had put up no signs in Arabic saying, don't come down this road, nothing. The only way you knew not to come down that road was because you got shot. And we saw a blue Passat pass, and then we heard crying. And Mohammed, who was our translator, said to the Americans, you can shoot me if you want, but I'm going to go across the road and find out who's crying. And he came back carrying a little bundle in his arms. 
and it was a little girl called Zara in an orange spotty dress. She was six years old and the Americans had shot her in the head. And that was the end of any of the Iraqis I know having any faith in the, in the Americans. Yeah. She didn't die. You'll be glad to know that she didn't die. She, Mohammed brought her in. There were other members of her family who had also been injured and the Americans patched her up. They said we couldn't film her being patched up. Oh, you can imagine how Tim reacted to that. Mm -hmm. That was the cameraman I was working with. He said, if you, if Mohammed hadn't saved her, you wouldn't have the chance to save her life. And so you are going to let our team film, which they did. And they saved her. But in that day, we actually saw six people being killed by the Americans who were trigger happy. That was why it only lasted 24 hours, that feeling of liberation. There were two things that happened very early on. For a start, the, the American, the, the, the team that was meant to take over governing the country didn't arrive for weeks. <laughs> uh, they just didn't get there. Uh, and they, when they did get there, they, they did two things. First of all, they debathified Iraq. Mm. Everybody, everybody who'd been a member of the Ba'ath Party mm. were sacked from their jobs. So that was school teachers, hospital administrators, yeah. uh, you know, not, not just professional torturers. It was, so, all for, all, and, and then they disbanded the Iraqi armed forces uh, and the police disappeared. So there was, there were those ideologically driven decisions, a bit like you know, the same attitude to the Taliban, yeah. meant that all state authority collapsed and it was only a matter of time before the country would descend into sectarian violence and that happened within a few months and that built of course to a civil war. Um, before we open it to the, to the mm. audience for questions, I'll ask the two of you, what, what is the lasting legacy of mm. the failures of both Afghanistan and Iraq in terms of that, that Chicago, looking back mm. to that Chicago mm. speech by Tony Blair where he, in that spirit of optimism in the early years, unveiled the new world in which liberal interventionism was going to be the norm. What's the state of the Western world's confidence in its own ability to shape the, shape the world around it? Yeah, I, I think it's totally shot. And actually, I'm, 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 I'm quite disappointed. I think, you, look, you know, Walls don't always go right. We don't always make the right decisions. Uh, but I come back to morality, whether it's morality, whether you should shoot somebody, even though you're allowed to, and clearly it's the wrong person, as you've just heard, or whether it's the morality of we must intervene cause, because we owe it. As humans, we owe it. As a civilised society, we owe it to those people who are, who, who are being, uh, being oppressed or who are dying. And my fear is that we've reached a point where we've lost trust because along the way... We believed our intervention in Iraq was wrong, or there was no weapons of mass destruction. Whatever it is, we've lost trust in our own abilities and doing things for the right reasons. And as a consequence, we sit here today, and we've got the conflict in Niger. Sure, Ukraine, everybody knows about Ukraine, but let's actually just figure out what is going on. Niger, terrible, terrible atrocity uh, are taking place, increasing the refugee piece and that whole piece of Francophone West Africa. And I think we've kind of forgotten as a society, we're too wrapped up in our own in our own interests, our own woes, that we've, we've forgotten that real people are affected. And as citizens of this world, we do have a right and we should intervene. And the other thing is that we created the language which President Putin now uses. If you look at what the Russians say about the invasion of Ukraine, which is actually a war of post-colonial restoration, he says it's a humanitarian intervention that he says that uh, the Russians have invaded Ukraine in order to save Russian speakers who are being oppressed by a neo-Nazi government. Much as the West has said that, you know, we invaded Iraq, you know, partly weapons of mass destruction, but also to save the people from Saddam Hussein, because he was an evil leader, which he was. 
And of course, the Ukrainian government is not evil in the same way, but that language has now been adopted. Mm. And so what this means is that, that it's no longer possible to do any kind of intervention, I think, which... Um, even when it's just. Even when it's and just. Winnable. And so that is what... And so now you have the consequences of non-intervention, which we, which we saw in, in Syria. There was... I, I just want... Before we uh, uh, get questions from the audience, there was one intervention we haven't mentioned, which was Libya in 2011. Oh, yes. I was in uh, Tripoli when... Uh, I was in Benghazi. Expecting, and Lizzie was in Benghazi. We were expecting. Yeah. I was expecting a quiet time in Tripoli, but then the Americans changed their mind on a on an old fly zone, and the and Britain, mm. France, and America decided to impose an old fly zone. And I, I knew that meant that tonight we would have bombing mm. um, of anti-aircraft uh, positions. And I thought I was losing my appetite for being bombed by my own side by this time, <laughs> 20 years after Iraq. And I came down to breakfast and said to my colleagues, there's no fly zone, does it, does it include business class? <laughs> we knew we were trapped. We knew we couldn't get out. Yeah. And um, I, I remember going out to the, and it was Obama, Sarkozy, and David Cameron. And I remember going out and box popping in the streets. And one woman said, I hate Obama. I hate Sarkozy. I hate the other one. What's his name? <laughs> And I said, Cameron, yes, him too. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get some questions from the floor. If you, if you there's one right there. Wait for the microphone, and then. Have you got the mic? Yeah. Alan, your example of, of everyone being dismissed because they're a member of the Bath Party is such a great example of black and white thinking, of dichotomizing thing. I think what Blake called two-horned reasoning, cloven fiction something is either black or white and we can't think in a, in, in a gray way. Um, that, it's such a great example of that. How can that understanding inform the way that we do things in the future? Well, look, the understanding has been there. There were three um, academics who work on Iraq who went to see uh, Tony Blair before the Iraq invasion and explained a lot of the complexity of the kind of thing that you're talking about, and um, he ignored them. So, you know, in the future, you can listen to people who know something. Yeah, I'm, I'm, absolutely. I think it's, yeah. <coughs> or you can ask people to go on the ground and actually find out what's really happening. Yeah. So the three things I always look at before I go anywhere, first of all, look at the geography. That informs the history. Mm. Look at the history itself as mm. to the people. Look at, the, look at the, the context of the people and the culture in which they live. Uh, I, I saying earlier, prior to this, I, I, I remember turning up to an area in Afghanistan with a letter of introduction saying, you know, with the Northern Alliance, we're here to help you. Uh, there were 200 people under weapon, you know, with weapons who we went to see. Uh, they said they were the Taliban, very happy to see us. Um, but we were now their guests and they looked after us for two weeks. Now, in a different context, you'd consider them to be the enemy and you, the, 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 they would surely kill you. Understanding the context of what we're yeah. going to get into is absolutely critical. Yeah. Uh I have a question. Uh, I'm, I'm of this uh, generation of four without internet. I'm from Bosnia, so can you hear me, yeah? Yeah. So basically, uh, I witnessed the failure of international community, especially Security Council, United Nations, and I have to say that only because of few journalists, aid workers, in, and some British army that helped to survive uh, war in Bosnia, and because of Resolution 819, for example, of United Nations, they didn't allow Bosnian Muslims, to the Bosnian government to defend itself. Uh, do you think that Security Council and United Nations has lost credibility through all this, uh, back, uh, you know, uh, establishing new, new forms of 
defending the world. And do, do you think, uh, whoever wants to answer that, we need some rapid response force uh, instead yeah, it's, it's of a good uh, question. Bad, so, I mean, bad security concerns? So, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, you're from Tuzla, you're from Bosnia, and you lived through that. Uh, and it, that war happened at a very particular time in history, at a time when the Cold War was over. It was possible then to get unanimity on the Security Council. It was possible, for example, to set up the International uh, Criminal Tribunal on former Yugoslavia and bring some of those uh, war criminals to justice. That's not possible anymore. It's completely impossible now because you will never get, because basically the Security Council is completely split between, you know, with the, the Chinese and the Russians on one side and the Americans, the British and the French on the other. And so um, you will never, and, until there's a complete change in international uh, diplomacy and, and power, you will, you will never get any kind of Security Council uh, agreement on war and peace now. Let's so get, a, get a question from, there's a gentleman there. Hello, thank you. Is this working? Hello. Um, two quick questions. One kind of follows on from your mention of Tony Blair and the Chicago statement. At the same time, Bernard Kushner, the French foreign minister and former head of MSF, raised the issue of right. Is humanitarian intervention a right or a privilege? Um, any right that you cannot enforce becomes little more than a privilege. And has that not itself damaged um, a lot of the following on um, potential interventions. And just one more to the Colonel. Um, you mentioned at the very beginning that you thought that British intervention generally was a force for good. Um, can you name any example of that since the turn of the millennium? Uh, yeah, well look, first of all, if you, if, if you, it's a bit like religion, if you don't believe in what, uh, what you're trying to do, you're in the wrong place. So I, I would agree, yeah, we are a force for good. Bear in mind, we're there to create the space for others to, to develop the peace. Uh, don't look at how it ends. Look at what we try and what, look what we try and stop. Say Bosnia is a force for good. Afghanistan is slightly more complex, but um, but you know we did bring education to we allowed education to take place. How it ended, of course, is 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 not so good. Can I just be uh, inject a note of cynicism here? You know, Diego Garcia, the Chagos Islands. Britain is not necessarily a force for good. Britain is a post-colonial power. Now, Britain has always intervened. I mean, we ruled the world. That's a form of sort of intervention, isn't it? And then in the post-colonial period, and then, you know, we have, you know, the Mao concentration camps amongst the Mao Mao in Kenya and, you know, in Malaya and all the rest of it. Let's not forget the background to intervention. Mm. The background to intervention is being, uh, the historical background is being a colonial power. This is a, not a benign thing and a force for good. It's about power and it's about ruling. Now, that doesn't mean that I am completely cynical about the things that, that Britain did try and do in the, in the 90s and the early 2000s, but that is where the idea that we intervene comes from. And now, I think, in the world we live in, it's, it's a form of hubris, because it's a, it says that we are still this important post-colonial power, and we're not. And basically, if we want to be a force for good, it has to be much more in concert with other people, which I understand we, you know, we already do. But a little, a little humility about ourselves goes a long way. First of all, to you, thank you for what you've done. Like Jeremy Moore, like Clive Fairweather, you're chaps of courage. Thank you. And thank you. Equally, before I ask my question, the same, and Alan has heard me say it here before, we as a society owe you journalists of quality, of integrity, of courage, a debt that is incalculable. You bring us facts, 
not fiction, because you face the fact, whereas the politicians wish to bring us fiction, which begs the question, how do we, as a society, develop, enforce a breed of politician with integrity, with courage, which is going to be able to face the decisions of the future? Gosh, what a difficult question. Do you know, and this, this will make us all sad, but I was, I was doing a little bit of reading um, about intervention before I came here, and one of the best things I read was by two politicians. One was Tom Tugendhat and the other was Joe Cox. And I think that Jo Cox, she was amazing because, of course, she had been an aid worker um, and so she understood the context very well and yet she was not, um, she was not a pacifist. She thought that you had to be hard-edged something. She did believe in, in humanitarian intervention. And I thought, oh, God, we miss her so much, don't we? And we really do need more politicians like, like Joe Cox, who had an international perspective and yet was still also totally devoted to the people of Batley and Spen. You know, she had a, a domestic perspective too. And so the, those are the kind of people we need to be looking for, I think. And on the question of journalism, we, we now live in a world where the uh, social media platforms are full of... Oh claims and accusations that end with, of course, you'll never read this on the BBC, will you? The BBC won't tell you this. Well, no, we won't, because it's not true. But, but we live in a world where you're able to pick and choose your own reality. You're able to, and, and it's, a, it's online confirmation bias, and that's, and, 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 and people, who, who, people who believe that there's some sort of conspiracy uh, of silence, and that the BBC and Channel 4 News and all the newspapers are part of it, is a very powerful thing, and it's, it's corrosive. And, and, much more than the you know, getting politicians we deserve, tackling that is training ourselves as a society to, to distinguish between news sources that are credible, though they sometimes get it wrong, sure. and news sources that set out deliberately to distort and to deceive. We have to learn as a society how to, to distinguish between the two. I'm being told, I know there are other hands up. Gentlemen there, I'm sorry, I apologize um, that, I that I didn't get to you, but our time is definitely up. There's a, a lady with a placard saying finish. Sorry. But Sorry. we're not Finnish, we're I, British. Yeah. <laughs> Please thank Graham and Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs>